0: Hello Cinefans, I'm Kendall Kruver, and this is Watching Classic Movies. My guest, Tom Zimmerman, is the author of the Queen of Technicolor, Maria Montez in Hollywood. Montez was a unique star, imperious but warm, not known for her acting ability, but skilled in committing completely to a role, whether in a skimpy costume for the six legendary Neverland films she made for Universal, or in a grittier setting such as for her more noirish European roles, we talked about the magnetism, determination, and integrity of this remarkable woman.
1: Welcome, Tom. Thank you for joining me today. Thank you. Good to be here. So, I was interested in the story you had in the acknowledgments of your book that um, when you were doing a book about the photographer Ray Jones, who did that gorgeous photo on the cover of your book, um, that you spoke with his son, John, and that John had many stories to share about various stars, but Maria Montez was the one that stood out to you and that you wanted to go further with, which, you know, led to writing this book. So what was it that he told you that made you interested in Maria Montez?
2: Well, when he told me the story, this was the uh, late 90s. The book was published in 98, uh, and the event happened in the mid-40s. So this is half a century later. But he was talking about how he was helping his dad. <laughs> he would go in like on weekends or if there was no school or something uh, to his to the photo lab at Universal and help his dad move props around and move the can whatever. I mean, he was, you know, seven, eight years old. And I'm sure he was more underfoot than anything else. But, you know, his dad thought it was great that he was there. And he loved helping his dad because it was just so exciting being there, movie stars and stuff. Well, Maria Montez was scheduled to come in that day. And he'd seen a couple of her movies and he knew who she was. But he said when she came in the room, she was so ridiculously beautiful. It was like you could hardly look at her. And she was, of course, in makeup and everything else getting ready for the for the for the portraits. Uh, but he said it was just staggering how beautiful she was. And he couldn't think of any other various of the universal movie stars that looked as good as she did in person the way she did. And on top of that, she looks at him and she says, oh, what a cute little boy. And she says, here, come over. And, and she plopped him on her lap. And she's asking him about his life and how are things going and Isn't it exciting to be with your dad? And isn't this great? And all this very personal stuff, this very simple stuff. And she was, for all the insane beauty that she had, for the goofy costume that she was wearing for the portrait session, she was such a down-to-earth, sensitive, loving person that it just, it stuck in his mind completely for the half century. And I thought, wow, this is this is really great because this ain't how you think of Maria Montez. You think of her as this crazy person, uh, you know, the commissary actress and all this other nonsense and these goofy movies that she was in. And, you know, she wasn't the world's greatest actress. She was a little bit hard to understand. But clearly at base, she was just this kind of very loving Latin woman that wanted nothing more in life than to have a fantasy and be a movie star but she wanted to have both the the family and be the movie star and
1: that's how it worked out well and that's what I find interesting about her I mean because I love this quote that you had in the book from Luella Parsons that she was never born to bloom unseen (laughs) it makes so much sense because you you look at her and you almost laugh she's so beautiful and then there's a picture in the book of her and her sisters and like they're all that gorgeous it's It's ridiculous. And yet she did have so much heart and you could see that in some of the personal relationships that she had, that she really, you know, as imperious as she could be, she also had these close friendships.
2: You know, I don't know what you could compare Barahona in the Dominican to in the US, but maybe some infinitesimal town in the South or something. And Barahona was, was so isolated. It wasn't even connected to the capital by roadway until she was well into her marriage in her 20s. In the 1930s is when they finally connected the thing. You could only get there by boat. It was unbelievably isolated, but they were from one of the finest families in town. And this whole imperiousness that comes across in our, all of our, uh, what I call the Neverland movies, the, the famous movies, the Technicolor ones, you know, that came to her completely naturally, because that's how she always was. Ever since she was a kid, she was turned from one of the best families. Uh, they were invited to all the, the various functions of the town. And then when she marries this banker, uh, McFeeders, and moves to Santa Domingo, the capital, now she's hanging around with uh, Trujillo and his family and all that. So she was always at the very top echelon of, of society of wherever she was at. And of course, until she came to the US. But that's, then she became a movie star, so she got you know, invited to the White House.
1: <laughs> mm-hmm. And she felt she belonged there. I think that's what's so remarkable is that even from her first movie, she has such confidence.
2: Because you, you can really see it's the dumbest movie ever. It's one of these cowboy movies that they cranked out by the thousand. And, <laughs> and her name in the movie is Callahan. <laughs> of all things, so universal is at least you know semi-conscious, and they decide we got to give a reason why she sounds like she's not a Callahan. <laughs> this is this is not an Irish accent this chick has. So they they have it that the parents got divorced and she went to a convent school in Mexico. So that's how they explain it, and it's one of the only movies she ever did where she speaks Spanish.
1: It, it was really lovely that you hear. I thought what a shame that we didn't get to hear that more.
2: You know, where you hear it the very best, and it's funny because she doesn't really speak Spanish, uh, but she's pronouncing all of the um, California place names. The um, Mon- Monterey movie that she did, it was it was after the, the Neverland movies, and but it was Technicolor. And for Universal, it was a big time production. But she was just in the thing, pronouncing all these place names in California. And she sounds so glorious, really, in her own language. And she just, English was just a struggle, an absolute struggle. And she had guys to help her try and calm down the accent since the first day she showed up at Universal and through the entire time that she was in Los Angeles. And it just, you know, it worked. Kind of.
1: <laughs> so do you think that's why, she, I, I know there, it's complicated, but do you think that played a role in her not being able to expand her, her career very much beyond the Neverland?
2: Certainly in, in Universal's eyes. Yeah. Absolutely. They thought that she could only play these kind of goofy roles where it didn't matter if she was speaking Russian, you know, because all anybody was going to do was look at her. Yeah. Yeah. And when it came, when Universal merged, especially with uh, with International in uh, forty five or six somewhere in there, right after the war, forty six, I think. You know, they were now determined they were going to make A-list movies because Universal was the the king of B movies, <laughs> but now they were going to make A stuff, and that they needed better actors. They needed better scripts. They needed better directors. They needed, they had to up their ante and they quit making most of the B-movies because also television was starting to come in and that was killing the B-movie market. Right. So they just could not conceive of Montez fitting into that new modem that they were developing. And the problem was, you know, she kept screaming and screaming to get into a movie where she wasn't half naked, where she was, you know, not the the, the object of lust, that she was an actual actress. And so they gave her this movie Tangier, and they did not lift a finger to do anything to help her. They didn't get great co-stars. They didn't get a great script. Uh, The movie looked great. They always looked great. Universal at least had terrific cinematographers. But for the the it was just it was just a typical B movie piece of junk. They did not help her.
1: Yeah, no. I could see that. It was something to get through. But at the same time, I could see these tantalizing bits of things like, oh, she could have been a femme fatale.
2: She could have been a and she had you when know, you hear her on these radio shows, uh, she's always the object of lust. I mean, that that's the typical thing on these things. But she has such a comedic flair, and she has such a sense of not taking herself seriously and just kind of going along with the program. She could have done comedy very, very well. And it's, it's like with Marilyn Monroe. All anybody wanted to do was look at her, and nobody had any kind of interest in how great a comedian she was.
1: Okay, that helps visualize it a little bit, what Maria Montez could have done in comedy.
2: Oh, there's if you ever do it, it, they're hard, very, very hard to find. And sadly, um, a lot of radio got lost forever because they didn't keep the tapes, they didn't uh keep the tapes properly and they deteriorated and you know, it's just it's just very difficult <laughs> finding anything. But when you can find some stuff, uh, she was very, very good. And she was on the Bob Hope show a couple of times and you know hope had nothing but fun with her and she just went along with the program it is just universal simply did not think they had much of anything with her she made money hand over fist for them with the, with the neverland movies but they thought well this is what she can do and now the war is over so we're not making these kind of movies anymore because people don't need the escapism quite on the level that they did during World War II, the worst war in the history of humanity. And that people have to rearrange their head that this wasn't like this lunacy in Afghanistan where we're there for 20 years and we leave and it was like we were never there at all. I mean, this is World War II. This is a war to keep our national identity. And every family in America has some skin in the game as they say you know a son a husband uh, a very good friend that lived next door and you grew up with uh, if you're a woman you know guys in your your class at, at high school yeah it's, it's and, and people you just have to get that into your head and that has a lot to do with the career that she had because people were so desperate. For escape. And you could go to this movie for like, you know, 40 uh, 90 minutes or so. And there you are running around in the jungle somewhere. And there's no Japanese there, there's no Japanese Navy there. Uh, there's just, you know, all these, you know, strong clad women every place, and starring Maria Montez.
1: Yeah. You know, I I, I know people laugh, but she took those roles seriously in a way like she threw herself into them they were no cheap thing to her and i love that i love that she's in cobra woman just flailing around dooming you know natives to the volcano but she's doing it better than anybody in the world
2: and and reviewers at the time especially that goof bosley carruthers who was was the guy from the new york times that i think basically hated yes you know Stage plays were where it was at. He's the ultimate snob New Yorker. And he just did nothing but, you know, bash her every time she made a movie, including Cobra, woman, where he said, you know, there's not a bit of difference between the two characters. But that's just simply not true. When she was playing the good sister that gets kidnapped and taken back to Cobra Island, that was one personality. And when she played the evil sister, that was a whole different thing. She was two distinct characters in the thing. Yeah. Now, granted, both of them running around in goofy costumes and, and all that and, you know, having to be saved or wanting to kill people, one or the other. But nonetheless, she was two distinct characters in there, but nobody nobody gave her credit.
1: I feel, feel like people went in, there were preconceived notions there.
2: That was, a, and you get it from the columnists, you get it from everybody. That they, that, it, It's the, the problem that Jane Mansfield had exactly the same thing. Jane Mansfield would do any lunatic thing for publicity because she wanted to get her name known. Well, Maria was exactly the same way when she was starting out because, God, she was 28 years old when she was signed. And, you know, for Hollywood at that time, my God, that is age for a woman. Mm -hmm. And so that's why they made her 20 (laughs) in in all of their publicity things. But she felt that she just had to get the show on the road. And she didn't think Universal was doing enough because Universal had, you know, Martha O'Driscoll and they had Anne Gwynn and they had uh, Evelyn Andrew. They had all these other actresses that they signed about the time that they signed her. And they were all trying to figure out what to do with them because at the time they wanted to put you in a niche because they figured that if the audience accepted you as a jungle queen, then they'll accept you as a jungle queen or, or an Arabian queen or any other kind of crazy queen. But they, they're they not going to be interested in you playing, you know, in, in Hamlet or something.
1: Kind of the the Dorothy Lamarque occurs once the dye is cast. And, you know, Dorothy
2: L'Amour, you know, she had this massively long hair to be in the sarong movies all the time. Yeah, She took it upon herself one day to cut off her hair. The studio was aghast. What have you done? And then they start putting her in these road pictures and stuff because she was a great light comedian. Yeah. And she could play off of Bob Hope and Bing Crosby marvelously. And so she she was able to expand her career, but she was also born in the U.S. and she didn't have an accent, mm-hmm. and she looked kind of exotic, which was the term of, in those days that anybody that didn't look you know like Jean, you know uh, Grace Kelly you know as Anglo angle as humanly possible yes exactly they were exotic
1: yeah yeah so that movie Wicked City that she she did in Europe that they did with their own. That she and her husband did with their own production company. I thought that was very interesting, the side of her that it showed.
2: Well, leave it to the Europeans. She plays a prostitute. Yeah. And that is inconceivable in the United States that they would ever put her in that kind of role. Completely inconceivable. And she had good people around her. I mean, really talented actors around her. And it, it had... The production value was so-so. I mean, this is Europe right after World War II. You know, and the place is still a complete wreck. And, and so the movies didn't, just didn't have much money. That was the other thing. And there was very little money coming from the US on this thing. Uh, some, but but not much. Most of the money that they raised, they raised in Europe. But yeah, compared to anything, anything else that she did in the US, that was an eye-opener. And you really believed her in that role. The way that she manipulates uh, Jean-Pierre Amont, the sailor uh, in the movie, is, is is really breathtaking. And she clearly doesn't care one thing about him. He's just a trick. And so he falls in love with her. Well, okay, great. He's more exploitable.
1: Yeah, it's really his problem
2: yeah ain't hers yeah
1: it isn't entirely cinematic this character she creates there's a there's a there's a bit of reality to it it's
2: yes and, and she pulled it off and I think I think part of it was that she was speaking French and she knew how to speak French because you know she's living with a French guy uh I mean you know husband uh, is French and she's in a romance language again. And this is not English, which she just beat her brains out trying to master and just simply never really did. But in a romance language, when she does the movies in France and then later in Italy and she's speaking Italian, you know, she sounds normal. She sounds like she can be Italian. She sounds like she can be French. I have a very good friend of mine's uh, uh, from France, uh, from Paris and is a French teacher. And I showed her the movie because I have it with English subtitles. And she says, oh, yeah, she sounds, you know, completely normal. I mean, she just sounds like a, you know, another French person.
1: OK, I was wondering about that. I, I was wondering how she was perceived as far as accent overseas. And I also just wonder, what would it have been like if she had started her career in Europe? Like, how do you think that would have played out?
2: Well, that would have been, well, she couldn't have because of the war. Uh, she was signed in 1940. Uh, And by that time, France was on the verge of being taken over, or already was. I'm not sure how the the dates worked out. Uh, But there was really no year, unless you were making these crazy Nazi movies, uh, and Hitler and the government paid for those things still, but all the great German filmmakers were all in Hollywood. I mean, anybody that could get out, got out.
1: But given, I mean, just... I guess I'm talking about the environment. So, like, maybe, okay. So, it couldn't have happened. But what if there hadn't been the situation of the war, like just the culture of it? I guess is my question. Like, do do you think she would have thrived the way she did for a short period in Hollywood? Do you think it would have lasted longer?
2: I think it could have lasted a much longer time because the French and the Italians
1: loved her. Yeah,
2: and they, they and and it's so interesting. You know, in the next French movie, she she plays a woman that owns a company that's only too happy to send all these guys to their death in doing these crazy jumps and stuff. It's it's a, a carnival company, and she keeps urging these guys, you know, in the sexual component obviously, to do these crazy stunts, and they generally wind up dead. And she has a whole wall of photographs of all these guys that have died. Uh, doing these crazy stunts, and her husband uh, had died very mysteriously in a boating accident. And so, <clears throat> it's this very lethal character, and that's how the Europeans saw her. And when she was even in these Italian movies, she was like that. She owned a uh, bar, and that's where the revolutionaries met. You know, it's it's not the imperious Maria that interested them. It was. It was the woman in full. And even when you see the magazine articles done about her, it always but always included the family, that she was a mother. And she had uh, her daughter, and she had a husband that obviously loved her. And it was this, this. that's what I, I just put in the book, woman in full, not just the crazy woman running around in sarongs and Arab getups.
1: But they saw her as maternal with Tina and then Jean-Pierre Almond. I I think it's interesting their films together. It doesn't seem like vanity to me. I think that they're well matched on the screen. I, I don't find him a, you know, absolutely mesmerizing actor, but they work together, I felt.
2: Yeah. And it's, you know, it's when he came back to France uh, after the war with Maria, of course, Uh, He was a national hero, because this is a guy that could have lived out the war years in Hollywood, making movies for MGM. He'd already made two of them, and he could have made them all through the rest of the war. But he stopped doing that and joined the Free French Army, and he was overseas. He was overseas for 18 months, wounded twice. I mean, this wasn't some guy that was, you know, just being taken care of because he was a famous actor. You know, he was right there in the middle of it all. And the French just loved him for that when when he went back. And he had, you know, some reputation. He was really just getting started before the war. But he was in the, in the, the original when Germany invaded France in 1940. He was in the army at that time and won the Croix de Guerre, which as a sergeant, that's a pretty... Good deal, mm-hmm. and so this was a great guy. But he was—he was not the world's greatest actor. Uh, his plays and and the movies that he wrote were not the world beater kind of things. So he wasn't, you know. It, it started to fade, you know, for all the for, for all the way they loved him when he first came back and all that. And you know, the first con f- uh, film festival happened in 1946. It was the first one was going to be. It was scheduled for 1939, but <laughs> something else got in the way. So once the war was finally over, they had the first CON Film Festival and representing the U.S. of A. was Jean-Pierre Mont and Maria Montez at the festival. Now, granted, they were already over there because they were on their honeymoon finally, but nonetheless, they were, they were bonafide people in the American movie audience. They were of consequence,
1: yeah yeah and, and and i agree with you maybe he's not the best actor but he had a presence i enjoy i always enjoy seeing him and i like them together i think some of their chemistry does translate not a, an astonishing amount but but you know a nice amount i would say
2: but in the thing where he's playing the the sailor that falls in love with the prostitute you can really see it you can really feel it yeah that this guy is in completely, hopelessly enamored of this woman, and what she does for a living—well, you know, whatever. But but he, this, I can see her soul, you know, that kind of thing. Mm-hmm. And as it turns out, you know,
1: she doesn't really have much of a soul. <laughs> right, right. So, I mean, that was such an intriguing film, and I, and I, I haven't seen much beyond that, so I, I don't know the end of the story yet. But I just wanted. If she had lived longer, where do you think she would have gone? I know that there were possibilities of work in the U.S. coming up. Do you think she would have gone back to the United States or do you think Europe? I am mean, like, where, where would she have gone if she'd have gone on a little longer?
2: You know, there was so many of those B-movie actresses that wound up on television. Yeah. Marjorie Lord being the ultimate example. She just kind of knocked around Hollywood. She'd been pretty successful in New York on the stage but just never caught on in hollywood for some reason just did a movie here and a movie there and not much but then she gets she becomes danny thomas's wife on the danny thomas show and make room for daddy and all that and she has this enormous career and whenever they got back together to do movies as as the family again which was typical at that time she was always in the movie playing the wife because that was like the established persona right and i could see montez you know on television I, certainly on television, I could see her doing some uh, more American movies. Supposedly Louis Scher, her agent, you know, he had his he, he had his flight booked. It was he was going to arrive a couple of weeks after she died because he had a bona fide project that a, an American producer was interested in and wanted her for the thing. And the other thing that astounds me is Noel Coward of all people was preparing a play for her to be in. That's fantastic. No, coward? That that astounds me.
1: He saw her then. That's what's interesting. He saw something in her.
2: He saw something in her. He saw something that he was sure that he could pull out. Yeah. Uh, for the play. And it was a play that that uh, Amont had written about uh, an intelligent woman in Hollywood that all they want to do is put in her a sarong. That was, it was basically about Maria. The play itself came and went in a heartbeat. But uh, a Coward saw something in this. He thought he could really expand it and he could work with her and it would just be great. And then everything fell apart, of course, when she died.
1: It's so sad, especially because she, she, she did seem to have so much love in her life. That You know, she she seemed like the marriage was, kind of getting on the right track and her family. It's really a tragedy.
2: You know, as I as I wrote in the final part of the book, this wasn't some now aging, because I mean, she was 39 by this time. This wasn't some aging movie star just clinging with both hands and feet onto a fading career. You know, she was a wife and a mother. And she was obviously incredibly in love with her husband. They had the rocky patch, but by this time, everything was swell. The daughter was at her uh, uncle's house, Amant's brother, having dinner with, or lunch rather, with with him and and the the rest of the family and all that. So there was this whole family unit in, in, in Paris. Plus, she had two of her sisters that had come over from the U.S., uh, that were living with her in Paris. So it was this, this wonderful family life. And and you know, her, she wasn't in Hollywood anymore, but she was still making movies. And God, the French and Italians thought she was the greatest thing since sliced bread. And, and you just didn't get that from certainly the American movie companies. You just didn't.
1: So, given all that, I mean, what? Do you want people to know about Maria Montez that we maybe haven't discussed? Like, what what is the impression you want people to be left with when they think about Maria Montez?
2: It seems odd, but she was really the ultimate feminist because she arrives in Hollywood. There's no kind of big time male producer that's pushing her. There's no kind of big time male director. She's not sleeping with the heads of the studio or any of that stuff. She is dedicated to her career, to being made known, to be moving on from just being window dressing in these different movies, which is what she was in the first five movies that she did. But it was all on her own hook because Universal had all these other starlets to deal with. And Universal thought, well, you know, the good neighbor policy, Latin woman and all that, that really fits in. This is good for us. But they didn't do all that much. To push her. They did at least try and put her in various types of movies to see where she fit. And they finally stuck her in a sarong for this program or this nothing movie called South of Tahiti. But that was the first time that anybody perked up. And the photographs, Ray Jones photographs of her appeared everywhere, because <laughs> she looked pretty terrific in the sarong. So but that, w- but other than that, it was her that was making these nightclub entrances. And if she felt she didn't get enough attention, the first time she came in, she would come back and come in again. And sometimes she would have a change of clothes there along with her. And again, she said, you always had to have a story prepared for the columnists. You had to keep them interested. So she always dreamed up some kind of a story. And the more kind of extreme and crazy, the better. And the whole thing with the commissary actress, you know, she would come into the commissary to get lunch, but she would be dressed to the teeth when she did. She would have all these gestures as she was reading something. She would eat the food in just this this big dramatic way. And everybody stopped and stared (laughs) because nobody had ever seen something like this before. And the columnist went nuts for it. And so she winds up in the columns, she winds up in the movie magazines. Whenever she went out, she would be again dressed to the teeth.
1: Well, you know, she I do admire her. I do think she was very strong. I think I've always kind of taken her seriously because she did what she did so well. But after reading this book, I, I admired her more personally because there was just so much determination and she didn't play herself or anybody else cheap. And I think that's admirable.
2: Well, and the whole deal, and one of the reasons that Latin fans liked her so much is she absolutely never made fun of her ethnicity and didn't make fun the way Lupi Velez and Carmen Miranda did of their language problems. She never did that.
1: Well, I just, I think she was a woman of great honor, and she she associated with people of great honor. And, you know, I I really admire her, and um, I, I appreciate you writing this book, it was very eye-opening. And um, thank you so much for taking the time to talk to me today.
2: Oh, this is great. This is, you asked the great questions. Very, this is terrific.
0: For more information, including how to find Tom's book and a list of films discussed, go to watchingclassicmovies.com. Continued thanks to my listeners for your support. I hear I have some new younger audience members I'm so happy you're interested in classic films. If you like the show, please rate and review wherever you listen. I appreciate you all. This is Kendall Kruver, watching classic movies. Until next time.